Mike, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Excellent. Thanks. Uh, really excited to have you and uh, excited about this uh, topic. Great to have a marketing person. I think shares uh, my, my uh, point of view, but we will see. Uh, welcome, everybody, to uh, Tech Sales Insights, episode number 70. Uh, really honored to have Mike Triano here. Uh, he's with uh, G20 Ventures, uh, board member currently of uh, Fetcher AI, in the recruiting space, Ripple Match, Diversity, HomeTap Equity Partners in the home market. Uh, so we'll be hearing more about those companies. He's an ex-CEO, CMO. Uh, but interestingly enough, on his uh, LinkedIn, it says Venture Storyteller, Wartime Consigliere, and lyric Lyrical Gangsta. So for those that are not from Boston, that's uh, another way to say gangster. Uh, today is sponsored by Taos. Uh, one of our most viewed guests has been uh, Ken Growey, who's a CRO at uh, Taos. So happy to do him a favor. And he's a great recruiting client as well. Uh, Taos provides DevOps, Dev Security Ops, FinOps, and Data Ops uh, business outcomes for thriving in a cloud agnostic world. So basically, you need help on the cloud. Uh, Taos is there for you. And they've been uh, recently acquired by IBM. And so great to see uh, Ken and the whole Taos team uh, doing so well. The title that we have for today is Mark is marketing divorced from sales reality. Uh, love it. Uh, and my, Mike, I think we were first introduced through a good mutual friend, Jim Sullivan. Uh, you worked with him at Actifio. He's been a longtime great, great uh, friend and uh, family friend for sure. And uh, also through uh, G20 Ventures, uh, Emissary, uh, who we've done uh, a lot of work with is a great company. We'll find out uh, more about as well. Uh, we had a cup of coffee and uh, I think it was con Concord at a st Starbucks in the fall when you could kind of start to do some uh, more back face-to-face uh, -face in the Boston area. But uh, certainly it's been, uh, amazing to see your track record on the marketing side, on the CEO side, now kind of taking those skill sets into the venture world. You certainly have a great reputation and uh, very impressive with uh, any, any of the interactions that uh, we've seen. And uh, also a great family man having uh, four, uh, four kids, I almost said 14, four kids between the age and uh, ages of 13 and, and 24. So uh, why don't we just jump right in here. So maybe tell us a bit about your professional background. Uh, well, I started off as an ad guy. I um, uh, figured out I, I was a kind of storyteller uh, at Cornell and then um, came out and, and went to New York to find fame and fortune as an ad man. Um, took a while longer than I expected. I was a bouncer for a while and then a bartender, but I ended up in advertising and uh, eventually uh, became a brand strategy guy at McCann in New York. Did the same thing at Foot Conan Building in San Francisco. Uh, went back to business school and uh, uh, through a long chain of events, ended up the founding CEO of Ogilvy Interactive. So really at that kind of forefront of, of uh, digital marketing back in the dot-com bubble. I like to joke that I, um, I started my career as a digital guy in the brand-driven world, and I'm going to end it as a brand-driven guy in a digital world. There you go. Uh, but uh, so a lot's changed there. But uh, I left Ogilvy to start my first company. It was an agency called Brandscape, and um, uh, we got acquired by a company that eventually went public and that I ran as the president, a company called Primex. Um, uh, from there, did a bunch of startups, some hits and some misses, uh, did okay. Uh, and through a series of adventures, ended up really saying, you know what, I'm a good CEO, but I think I'm a really good marketing guy and I'm going to 
I'm going to spend the rest of my career doing that, getting back to basics. I was the CMO a few times. The last one was called Actifio, uh, led that company from a kind of obscure data virtualization technology into a $1.2 billion unicorn uh, before I left to uh, come over to the dark side and become a VC. Awesome. And uh, Actifio, I mean, you're really a uh, kind of leader uh, carving out a whole space that really didn't exist before, right? Uh, yeah, it was really creating a new category and, um, that was a lot of, uh, effort and, um, uh, something that, um, you know, there's a lot of value in that. And there's a lot of debate in marketing circles about the value versus the cost of trying to create a category. Uh, we were successful in doing that at Actifio and I measure success as does Gartner eventually create an MQ and they did. Yeah, MQ being magic quadrant for those that don't know. That's right. Now, uh, going over to the VC side, uh, one of my pet peeves, and a lot of them have been far more successful than than me. But uh, a lot of you know venture capital PE people really have no operating experience, which I always find interesting, especially if you talk to them. But again, a lot of them have crushed it. So who, who am I to say? Um, so I totally get how how you can be a value. But how did you actually transition into that uh, VC world? Yeah, so uh, one of our investors at Actifio was uh, Andreessen Horowitz, uh, sort of become a storied VC Great out one. of the West Coast. <laughs> and um, uh, I was out there and I, I had a, you know, like a really amazing experience. And I was on a plane and I wrote this piece on Medium about my experience there and what I felt made them special. And it just sort of exploded. It went viral for a while. It was like the most, the biggest thing I'd ever written. And as a result of that piece, I had a bunch of VCs reach out and say, you know, hey, have you ever thought about uh, maybe coming over the investing side? And my initial answer was no. Um, I think most of you guys are dicks um, for the reason that you just described. Uh, but I reached out to a, a friend of mine who was on our board, a guy named Bob Hauer, who um, I had gotten to know and who I really respected. And I said, do you think, you know, I would enjoy this and you think I'd be any good at it? And he said, yes, yes, and come be my partner. Uh, and so that's sort of how it went down. Gotcha. Cool. Um, so maybe tell us a little bit more about G20 Ventures. Yeah, so we think of ourselves as kind of human scale venture capital. Uh, we live in an era of billion dollar venture funds trying to put a lot of money to work and take a lot of fees in the process. Uh, we are the opposite of that. We, we are a, a small Series A fund, which seems almost like a contradiction in terms. Uh, we are going to deploy 60 to 70 million dollar capital uh, against uh, maybe eight to 10 companies and try to play a meaningful role in helping them be successful. Uh, actively involved uh, on the boards that I sit on, as are my partners. You mentioned mine, HomeTap, Fetcher, and RippleMatch, three companies that I remain not only involved in, but really excited about. Um, and uh, supporting us as a cast of characters, originally 20, which is where the name comes from, but, but now it's grown to 30 operators, like people who have been in the trenches in position player roles and as founder CEOs. And they source deals for us. They help with diligence. Most importantly, they support the portfolio. If you need someone who really understands the channel or you need someone who really understands, you know, uh, growth finance or whatever, you know, we can bring someone to the table that can be a trusted advisor. And uh, that's that's uh, really valuable. Uh, we're just uh, getting through our third fund and starting to think about our fourth. Oh, that's great. Uh, so you put Dino in that bucket, I guess, as well, right? Dino D. Uh, yeah, my Canadian paisano, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so for those that aren't that familiar of the uh, kind of VC side, how, how do you actually source deals? 
Um, you know, same way you find deals and sales, right? Your uh, your opportunities are disguised as other people's problems. So I spent a lot of time out in the world talking to entrepreneurs and trying to help them tell their story better. And along the way, you know, I run into uh, folks who are, you know, primarily constrained by the availability of capital and growing their business to the next level, you know. To invest at Series A, it's it's not like angel investing or early stage. You know, I like to say angels invest in people, seed invest in product. A is really where you start to invest in the business. And um, we're looking for companies with product market fit and early traction on the go-to-market side, looking to make that transition from selling to building a machine that sells. Uh, and as you know all too well, those are two very different skills, and we really understand that difference and can be helpful in companies and beginning to scale that go-to-market machine. Wow, great. So um, uh, you're, you're on the uh, active with a lot of companies, but a, cu a couple you're more active with on the, the board side. So one is uh, Ripple Match, which is uh, interesting in the uh, diversity space. Yeah, Ripple Match is really about trying to uh, uh, handle, you know, it's recruiting for Gen Z, basically. Uh, these guys have relationships with a lot of super talented folks across you know major universities and they help companies identify the subset of those people who are going to be a fit for what they need and acts you know uses an ai layer to make be a matchmaker essentially connecting to those people and um uh have really had you know remarkable success remarkable growth since we invested in them a few years back well, that's great you know with, with this obviously being uh the tech sales insights <laughs> name and uh, de demographic a lot, a lot of people talk about you know diversity in selling and i'm wondering if there's any niche or angle for them as they're going in back into those college ranks to kind of do some kind of sales focused effort yeah 100 percent. i mean look i we, you know we all do recruiting the same way which is we go back to either the schools we went to or the schools we wanted to go to and we look for people like us uh, and if you're like, you know, whatever, you know, uh, a white football player, you know, you're going to you're going to naturally gravitate towards those people, whether they're you know, you're going to end up with people a lot like you, uh, as opposed to people who are great for the role. Uh, and so what Ripple Match really does is to try and, you know, change that to try and help you understand as a company, what are the variables? What are the attributes of a student that really predicts success? Uh, you know, you, you know, we're both old enough to remember like the days when EMC would just like look for like, you know, whatever, uh, uh, you know, uh, college athletes from yeah. uh, from a very specific set of schools. And Boston, probably, you, can say, you can say Boston College. I know it's yeah, a Cornell, yeah, yeah. Cornell person. It's hard to say, but go ahead. Right. right. Um, again, that was a proxy for value. It's not that athletes per se. It's that they that predicted leadership qualities and communication and whatever, some level of personal charisma. Uh, but there's a lot of attributes that predict success in different roles. And uh, what, what Ripple Match does is help to surface those things in the form of a set of attributes it collects about these students um, and to find the people who are right, regardless of, you know, in a way, it's sort of correcting for racial and gender bias in the way we do recruiting and really helping you isolate on who is the right person. Uh, and and what, what happens inevitably, and this is very encouraging to me, is you end up with a much more racially and, uh, uh, you know, uh, gender diverse pool of candidates, which which tends to encourage diversity in your ranks as a whole. So it's a uh, uh, they're on a mission I really believe in and uh, and doing great things. That's great. And uh, what, what about HomeTap? Yeah, HomeTap. So, you know, I'm a working class Italian kid from Rhode Island and 
uh, the first in my family to go to college and, uh, you know, was able to pay for that. My dad was actually a sales guy uh, in the 128 corridor back in the day. And uh, deck options paid for a lot of my uh, my my collegiate experience. Uh, but a lot of people, uh, you know, are struggling and uh, and they're sort of like uh, uh, um, house poor, meaning like a lot of their you know net worth is locked up in a home. And so uh, the CEO of, of HomeTap, a guy named Jeff Glass, you know, he grew up in a similar circumstance and always wanted to do something to try and fix it. And so this company, uh, HomeTap, what they do is they help unlock some of the equity in your home uh, without adding additional debt to your balance sheet. So you know, you have a house that's that is worth so much when you bought it, and it's going to be worth a lot more when you sell it. What if you could take some of that value in the future and turn it into cash in the present? That's really what they do. And uh, it just lets people, you know, live their lives a little bit better in the near term. And uh, uh, so, again, it's a mission I really believe in and a company that's uh, doing very well. Yeah, that's great. And then uh, you're, you're not on the board, but we both have some involvement with uh, Emissary, which is a cool company that has a, a bench of uh, recently departed executives that can help companies with uh, their sales cycles. That's right. That's a great one. I mean, you know, we're going to talk today about the challenge of enterprise selling and how it's changed over the years. And yeah. these big complex sales involving like, you know, trying to distill value prop and build, you know, consensus across a, uh, you know, a buying coalition, like it's a pain in the ass. Um, and, and what you have are a bunch of companies who are using publicly available data sets to try to get an advantage. And, and by definition, you're not going to have one because everybody's got that data. So uh, as we say uh, back in Rhode Island, it's good to know a guy. Um, you know, as I say very often, you know, companies don't buy things. People inside companies buy things. Buy things. And, and Emissary gives you an opportunity to create a relationship with someone who knows the people inside a company yep. and, and to really have an advantage. Uh, in trying to sell into those organizations. And, uh, you know, again, a company whose value prop is uh, something I that resonates with me and uh, and uh, uh, I'm having a great success as a result. Awesome. So let's uh, get into it here. So your awesome title is, uh, is marketing divorced from sales reality? So uh, tell us some more. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I, um, I, had the sort of unusual career arc of being a CEO a few times before I became a marketing guy and was asked to be CMO of, of Actifio. And, and when I um, took that job, I was like, well, I don't really know how to be a CMO. Um, you know, I got to go talk to some people. And one of the guys I talked to was at the time, the CMO of PTC Corporation, a guy named Rob Gremley. And I asked for some time with him. He was very gracious and giving it to me. And I, I went to his office and I was like, you know, how do you, know if you're doing a good job like how do you what makes a great cmo and uh, you know rob said to me you know you're gonna be in a board meeting uh a couple of months after you start this job and you're gonna have your slides and you're gonna tell the story and do the mike triano thing and it's all gonna go great um and then one of your board members is gonna turn to the guy running sales and he's gonna say is what they're doing really important to you and if that guy says yes you're doing a good job and if he doesn't, then you're not. Um, and I, I love that uh, way of thinking about it. You know, I mentioned my experience on, you know, in the ad world and consumer brand building is very different than enterprise selling. Um, and that idea that the measure of the value of marketing is really in whether it makes sales easier, whether it really matters in terms of driving revenue, that marketing isn't something that 
that is, you know, divorced from sales. Like, you know, in the arc of my career, it used to be marketing didn't have a role at the grown-up table, right? It was, uh, it was like over with HR uh, as a sort of cost base, right? And then you had the proliferation of inbound and a much more metrics-driven marketing and more accountability in marketing. And on balance, that was a good thing. But what happened is that a whole bunch of metrics got made up that, that marketing people can feel good about. Um, and, and like, you know, as a board member now, if I go talk to the marketing people and I say, how's it going? They're going to say, oh, we're killing it. And they're going to show me a bunch of slides up into the right of a bunch of metrics. Um, and if I ask them, you know, you know, did you make your number last quarter? Like how many sales guys made their number? Like, I love that question because it shows whether they're connected to what's happening on the ground. Um, and, and the answer very often is, I don't know. Um, and uh, I just, I, I never understood how that could be. And I certainly tried to model something different when I stepped into the CMO role. Uh, what about the whole, you know, what always drives me up a wall is you, you said those, uh, you know, marketing dashboards, they're all green and then sales could be yellow or red, but um, this whole kind of MQL, right? So marketing defines what, what's an MQL and yeah, my two cents is who cares? It's really kind of SQL, right? That's right. Um, at the end of the day, what's the handoff between marketing and sales? Um, and and SQL is the subset of MQL that is expected by accepted by the sales guys as an opportunity they're going to spend time on and be held accountable to by their manager, right? Right. So uh, I, I I hate MQL as an idea, uh, and I, I hate it as a metric and a way to measure success in marketing. You know what I want to know is of the shit we closed last quarter, how much of it came from a marketing source? Yeah. Uh, how much of it was touched by marketing materials? You know. Um, uh, you know, I want to understand, you know, certainly accountability matters in terms of what was the IROI and the impact on the, on the money we spent against our bigger programs. But to what extent, you know, when we talk to sales, that they feel like marketing is really supporting what they do. And um, it's unacceptable if they feel anything other than, you know, this marketing stuff is, is, is really critical to me and I need more of it. Gotcha. So... Uh, all your points are, again, I totally violent agreement with. So I'm thinking if I'm a marketing person in an org, I might have this CMO who kind of isn't thinking the way that you're you're talking about. So say if I'm a, a marketing person, maybe individual contributor, first line manager under, under CMO that may not believe the things that you do, what kind of advice or feedback would you have for that marketing person? Uh, spend time with a sales guy. Um, I think that um, when you really understand what they're up against uh, in the in the in the messy reality of of the world, like you know, I I would relish the opportunity to go and spend a few days on the ground, you know, with one of our reps in the field, and really kind of breathe their air and get a sense of what they're up against inside the client, and um, and 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 almost every single one of those trips resulted in some marketing deliverable that they found useful. Um, one of those ended up being just a, a, you know, an internal podcast to share their stories with each other, right? You know, it's a, it's a lonely gig carrying a bag out in, you know, whatever, you know, Charleston, uh, when, when the mothership is, uh, you know, whatever in Boston or in San Francisco yeah. or wherever. And, and to, to sort of have empathy for those guys and understand what they're up against and find ways to connect them to each other, to learn and grow, like. Uh, it's just one example of, of how you connect to the ground truth of what is useful in doing what marketing really can do, which is be a force multiplier for sales. Like, I think that the, the framework that marketing is really a, 
a supplier of leads that grows on a linear scale with sales headcount is sort of the wrong way to think about what marketing does. Uh, marketing should be a force multiplier of sales. It should make every dollar you spend on salespeople that much more productive um, by virtue of the way the brand exists and the way the stories are told and the set of tools the salespeople have to get deals done in the real world. Yeah. So what's your thought on where a CMO should report in? Um, I think the CMO should report to the CEO, uh, to be clear. I don't think it should report to sales because I do think it's different. But I think that that the sales leader and the marketing leader, you know, you mentioned Sully, you know, Jim Sullivan, a personal friend of us both and an unusual guy also, you know, came to sales, like was a sales guy, was a CEO and then came back. So we really related on a level that, you know, was unusual and it was an incredible, you know, blessing to be able to work shoulder to shoulder with him to drive what we both cared about, which was go to market productivity. You know, another quick story. When I was first starting at Actifio, Ash Ashutosh, who was the founder there, said, you know, Mike, I believe in what you're doing, but I just need a way to measure it. I need a way to measure it. That's not like whatever bullshit MQL driven because I don't care about that. Um, how do you think about how to measure whether marketing is working? And I said, well, you know, marketing should be a force multiplier, meaning, you know, does marketing make it easier to sell? Um, and, and the way to measure that is to say, okay, what, what did I sell new this quarter? And what did I spend on sales and marketing together? Right? Uh, or, or actually, it's actually the, the, the reverse ratio. So if I look at um, uh, what is the, for every dollar that I spend on sales and marketing, what did I generate in terms of new, uh, new, new sales? Um, then, then that number creates a baseline. And over time, if marketing is doing a good job building brand and doing all the other stuff marketing needs to do, you know, it should get easier and I should see growth in that metric. Um, and, and what you find is in a startup, you know, that number is below one, right? I'm spending more on sales and marketing than I am uh, on, on generating revenue in a quarter, right? But over time, uh, that changes. And in a, when a company crosses, you know, EBITDA zero, when they're no longer burning cash, I, I often find that that relationship is 2.5, meaning I'm generating, you know, for every dollar I'm spending in sales and marketing together, I'm generating two and a half dollars of uh, you know, revenue into the company. Um, and that journey is really enabled by like that customers have heard of the thing, uh, that sales guys have the tools they need productive, that when you're bringing new sales guys on, they're productive in one quarter instead of two quarters. You know, those things have a huge impact on the productivity of your, your go-to-market spend overall. And when you have a partner, you can look at that with together and say, okay, where is the opportunity for leverage now? And, and Jim and I would, you know, again, hand in glove, like trying to figure out, okay, this quarter, we really, we're going to bring on 12 new sales guys. Like, I really need your help getting them productive, you know, right out of the gate. And so I would work on sales enablement, or it would be like, okay, we, we really, you know, need to get some kind of validation from the analyst community, or we need to draw influencers to understand the copy data story and what's, what it's about, or we need support for channel partners to make them more productive. But whatever it was, we would we would partner on it, come at it from two different angles, and find a way to to uh, you know move the needle. 
That's great. I mean, in the, in the marketing side, one thing I always did, whether it was at a small company or a big company, would be tell marketing folks to actually go on sales calls, which, which you kind of mentioned. Uh, and if you're on the marketing executive side, you know, CMOs or VPs of marketing at some of the bigger companies I was at, I'd say, you know, when's the last time you're on a sales call? Like, yeah. uh, uh, what do yeah. you mean? I'm like, yeah. go. And especially if they go, you know, if they're it's a California company and they've got family in New York or whatever, well, you're going back and forth anyway, just stay for an extra day or two, go on sales calls. You get the company at an expense to pay for your flight, if nothing else. And you're probably going to, going to, uh, you know, learn a lot. And also cases where you can have, you're probably familiar with uh, exec sponsor programs, being an ex exec sponsor an account. And they usually more times than not would come back and say, wow, you know, th this is really hard. I'm like, how do you do your job without actually knowing and understanding all this? It's crazy. Uh -huh. A hundred percent. You know, I, I um, one of my like dearly held life philosophies is most of the pain in business and in life over the long run is caused by distance from the truth. Yep. Um, and nowhere is that more true than at the head of a marketing department. Uh, and, and the truth is what's happening on the ground every day out in the field. And you got to stay close to that if you if you want to have like not only job security, but if you want what you do to matter. You know, I don't, I don't want to be in the slide production business. Like most marketing people, they want to, they want to move, they want to move the needle. They want to do, you know, make a meaningful contribution. And the way you do it is by finding ways to uh, make sales and marketing together more productive. Go to market productivity is the name of the game. Yeah, I, the, the other one of my things I joke about, you appreciate it, was uh, you know, you'd be in some of these reviews that say, "Do you get paid per slide?" <laughs> you know why? Like well, that's, that's what it seems like. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. A, a, sometimes a 30 second story or anecdote is way more valuable than the 15 slide presentation and the ability to share those, move them around and, and uh, you know, uh, create best practices and celebrate success. You know, I think that's a big part of um, I think that's a big part of what great marketing is about. You know, I mentioned this earlier, alluded to it like, you know, I did a, a little win report podcast inside Actifio as just a way to share what was working and celebrate some of the heroic work being done in the field. And, and uh, I found it was really a great way to get through to people because that wasn't me telling them to go do this because I'm smarter than you, right? That was another one of them who like tried X and achieved Y, right? And I'm just the enabler. Uh, and I could find patterns in those dots and polish them up, but really enabling that channel of communication across the sales org I think it's one of the most uh, effective things that you can do, and and it's notoriously underdone, uh, you know. Uh, and I, I just I don't I never understood why. Yeah, st storytelling is uh, yeah, almost a lost art. And um, just thinking, uh, Ken Groe, who's a zero Taoist, does a uh, sixty second clip every uh, you know fr Friday afternoon. It's just always a nice little snippet in the vignette. That's so, it. Uh, really cool. So, hey, for those uh, that are either watching or listening along, uh, I forgot to mention previously, definitely uh, feel free to post any questions. And we have Tucker behind the scenes helping us to uh, pull those up. So certainly Mike uh, has amazing experience and happy to take uh, any of your questions. And also if anybody disagrees, always good to have a dis disagreement. And uh, when we were prepping, you, you said a couple things which uh, resonated really well here. Uh, Sales only wants demand gen. Uh, marketing only wants brand building. So. Yeah, um, you know, I mentioned my dad. I'll mention him again. You know, he he uh, held had great disdain for marketing people, <laughs> and I, I, there's no doubt that that shaped 
uh, my views of, of it. And, you know, he used to say, you know, uh, show me a sales guy and take away accountability and I'll show you, show you a marketing guy. Um, uh, and I, I was always chastened by that. I mean, as much as I'm a believer in brand, I, I, you know, in my early career, I tried to reconcile it with that worldview that it's a bunch of marketing bullshit until somebody signs on the dotted line. Um, and the way I did reconcile them and, and the thing that's animated really my whole career, like the one constant in all those roles that you described in your, uh, in your, uh, you know, uh, overly rosy intro of my background. Um, it really is about, um, you know, how do I find ways to uh, apply the tools of brand building, which is at its core is really about storytelling and emotional response and apply them in service to making sales more effective. Right. Not not create brand as something where like, you know, you know, I have 100 pennies on the table and I got to divide them between demand gen and brand building. Like you've already lost if you're having that conversation. Right. Right. Um, how do I think about the role of stories and making it easier to sell? How do I begin to deploy those uh, and, and really use the tools of marketing, the things marketing is uniquely good at? You know, another thing I believe is that that, you know, marketing and sales are both knives. But, uh, you know, sales is a scalpel um, and marketing is a machine. And how do I use those tools in the environments that they're best suited to, right? Because a scalpel is useless in the jungle and a machete is useless on the operating table, right? How do I really use marketing for what marketing is good for? Which again, really is brand building and emotional value and identity and all those things to kind of create an umbrella of awareness, understanding, and positive predisposition in the world um, that makes it easier to sell. Uh, and then to engage salespeople to, to empower them with the stories, the anecdotes, the narratives uh, as a way of talking about, uh, you know, the, the uh, you know, setting traps for competitors. Like marketing should be powering those narratives and enabling them across the sales team. And um, I think great marketing is really all about that. And that really is it's different from sales, but it, it's it's aligned with the interests of sales. That's really the the balance you're trying to strike. Gotcha. And uh, Greg DeFire, thanks for your comment. He says, great session. Uh, just thinking, what about it? So if you're a kind of CRO, uh, maybe a, a smaller company, uh, you might have had a you know somebody in the marketing side, CMO that's been there for a long time. And if it's, uh, I'll use the expression, kind of fighting city hall, right? So you're you're a CRO, you, you want, need all the stuff that you're talking about, but you just have the CMO who, you know, won't do what you want. You know, you can throw them under the bus to the CEO. Hopefully you're at a board presentation and the question gets asked, hey, how, how much is marketing help? But kind of any kind of tips or tricks of how a CRO can kind of, you know, either kind of work with it in a better way or obviously maybe just get the person fired or upgraded. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would, I would start with, um, before you create an enemy, um, and, and you start the, you know, pissing match of throwing leads over the wall. And, um, uh, what, what I would say is sit down, break bread, have a conversation and say, look, um, I understand you're doing a lot of things that are important, you know, in the grand scheme of other priorities, these are the three most important things I need from you. You know, here are the three things that are my most urgent priority that I believe fall under the rubric of the kinds of things you're doing. And whatever else you do, like, can you help me in these three areas? Right. 
Um, what about what about if that doesn't work? Because the situations I'm talking about, they they tried the common sense approach and it doesn't work. Um, yeah, I don't know. Then then you got a people problem. And um, how do you do that? How do you you know how do you make a change there? I don't know. I, you know, I, I think it's uh, those kind of power dynamics are really dangerous. And if you you know, I think you know, you got to find a way to get through to that person. You got to find a way to get through to them and do everything in your power to try and help them see the light, which is you want to help them succeed, which at the end of the day, they're not going to do if we're not getting what we want from a sales growth standpoint. And um, you got to find a way to find common ground. Shit, if you're a sales guy, you're, you you know how to persuade. Um, and by the way, I, I use the word guy in a kind of, uh, my intention is to be gender neutral there. If you're a salesperson, uh, it's really about how do I find a way to, um, you know, find some common ground and look at our aligned interests, which again, that's the beauty of this go-to-market productivity metric is it's a way to frame up success. I mean, the way you keep score shapes the way you play the game. And if you can get every butt off, maybe that's another way is like to go to the CEO and say, listen, I really think we should start to measure the productivity of the go-to-market team as a whole. And, and we should see that this metric improves over time. And I want to work with marketing and find a way to do that, right? Who's going to object to that? Um, at least you're making an effort. You're establishing yourself as a leader and trying to find alignment with this, you know, part of the organization that the CEO knows if you're at odds with each other, he or she is very much aware that there's some kind of pissing match going on between marketing and sales. And so how do you step out of that frame and try to get on the same side of the table with that person? Maybe it's coming up with a different way to think about how to keep score and how to measure success. Yeah, but but all fairness too, a lot of times, especially in tech companies, you've got an engineering centric CEO who, lack of better words, avoids conflict. You know, might be passive aggressive and kind of it doesn't want to get involved, which is obviously far, far different from our our DNA. Yeah, um, that's a problem. You know, uh, look, I there's a difference between authority and power. Um, uh, authority is, is something the organization gives you to go do what you want. Yeah. Power is something you take, um, and use, uh, in service to the goals of the, you know, hopefully the collective good. Right. And you got to find a way to like generate some power and begin to, uh, make things happen on the ground. And sometimes that's looking for ways to, you know, ask people in that organization for support. Um, again, like I, I realize it's a very practical question because things aren't always rosy, but you got to find a way to work together. You have to find a way to work together. That's just the way it is. And um, uh, that comes down to building a personal relationship and trying to find some trust and some common ground. Great. So a uh, reminder to those watching and listening, uh, we're having a great uh, discussion here with Mike Triano, uh, operating partner, G20 Ventures, current board member, longtime CEO, CMO, but really looking at the world through a uh, kind of, I'll say, a, a marketing lens that is, uh, unfortunately, I'll call it new, new, new age. But uh, I think probably something a lot of other organizations should be adopting. And uh, so feel free to uh, continue posting any questions or comments. And Tucker looks like we have a long one here from Eric Swenson. Hey, Mike, you mentioned having lost. If the discussion comes to dividing 100 pennies across demand gen versus brand, if that's the case, let's pretend you are given a sizable amount of incremental budget to go grow faster. 
You can spend this across brand, classic market demand, gen, plays, higher BDRs, or even higher more reps. How would you approach spending that money? So I guess it's kind of, if you look at the pie, kind of, you know, how, how do you look at, uh, you know, spending that or, or any other uh, perspectives? Uh, Eric, great question. Thanks. Um, well, I think you got to identify what is the bottleneck that is inhibiting our growth today, right? There's a, an entire, you know, pipeline that starts with, again, I would say it starts with awareness, um, goes to understanding positive predisposition. Those are outside the organization. There is a, you know, kind of first contact, which typically these days comes through the website and that flows all the way down to, uh, the progression through your various opportunity stages in Salesforce, right? And so I think you got to get alignment first in, in between sales and marketing as to what are the big bottlenecks in that extended funnel. Uh, what is holding us back today in terms of trying to be successful um, and, and trying to grow faster, which is what every go-to-market team wants to do. Um, and try and identify, okay, you know, there's 10 things, but of those, here's the number one, or if not that, here are the top three. Um, and, and, you know, what you want as a marketing person is that, you know, um, I don't want sales guys to come and, and tell me to do whatever. Like, I don't want them to come and tell me how to do my job. I want them to come to me with a problem. Like, don't come to me with your prescription. Like you don't go to the doctor and say, I need whatever Lipitor. Um, maybe you do. Um, you go and you say, well, you know, I want to live longer or whatever. And the doctor says, okay, well, you know, we're going to manage your cholesterol and here's the whatever after some analysis and diagnostics, because you respect that person. They're a you're looking for their expertise. So find a way to get on the same page as with respect to where the bottlenecks are on your extended funnel for go to market as a whole, and then work together with sales to break those bottlenecks. Like, you know, uh, there's a set of, of, you know, strategies and tactics that apply to the different stages of that funnel in very different ways. It may be that no one ever heard of us and our sales guys are struggling because, because of that. There's no unaided among the universe of prospects that we're trying to talk to. That's a problem. Maybe that's where you want to focus your finite capacity is in breaking that bottleneck. It may be that it's, you know, in the, in the handoff, like, uh, you know, where, where you have like sales guys that are throwing all these quote unquote MQLs over the wall and they're not being acted upon by sales. Well, that's a handoff problem. So how do we fix that? How do we create systems and processes that ensure that those things don't fall through the cracks when they're transferring from the marketing organization into sales? Maybe it's that, you know, we have a bunch of new salespeople starting and we need to get them productive in one quarter instead of two. All right, well, that's sales enablement. How do you work with marketing to really, you know, burnish and dramatically enhance your sales enablement program uh, to make people more productive. You know, it, it could be any of those things. It could be focus. It could be any of those. The key is to diagnose what are the bottlenecks in our current go-to-market funnel, and then have a set of tools, a set of programs, strategies, tactics that are specifically targeted at those things, and to do those things at the exclusion of everything else. Right? Um, having having you know more capacity in a place where you're not bottlenecked doesn't increase the throughput of the system as a whole, right? I remember that from HBS. Um, and so how do I break the bottlenecks in my current go-to-market funnel in a way that enhances productivity and, and enables me to grow faster? That's, that's how I would approach it. 
Great. All right, Eric, thanks for the question. And uh, feel free to circle back if there's any follow on or you disagree with any of that. So uh, moving on here. So some of your uh, secrets and success. Uh, I saw that you posted uh, one thing that was interesting, focus on what people feel and not just what they think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, at the end of the day, the measure of the effect of all communication in business is whether you change what someone else thinks, feels, or does, right? I'm not talking just to talk, right? I'm trying to affect change in the actions of another person. Um, and, you know, I, I say this all the time, but if you want to change what someone does, you have to change what they feel and not just what they think, right? Um, we are not, you know, irrational, but but nor are we solely rational, right? I, you know, I know I shouldn't have that second donut. I know it, but I want it because it represents whatever to me, right? That's an emotional driver of behavior. Emotional drivers of behavior are what works. It's it's our biology, like all the, you know, action stuff. You know, the body is connected to the brain through the back of the brain, which is all the lizard brain emotional shit, all the baggage we're carrying from whatever, you know, perceived victory narrative or whatever bad thing happened to us when we were seven, right? What all that shit's back here. And it dictates your actions in a way that is much more impactful than the, the smart stuff, like all the really smart, you know, brilliant, all the cerebellum, that stuff was bolted on like relatively recently in our evolutionary history. And that intellectual shit is never going to change what someone does. Um, all the data in the world won't change someone's mind. The only thing that'll do that is a good story. Um, and that's really about understanding the role of emotion in changing behavior. And if you don't understand that, you cannot be an effective marketing person, period. I would say you can't be an effective salesperson either, but there's lots of different cocktails. You know, people sell different ways. It's very personal. You know, uh, I, I think the best sellers I've known understood the role of emotion in changing behavior. They tried to understand what a person wanted, a customer wanted, and connect the dots between what they were selling and that. And, and that's why those people are, you know, have seem to have some kind of superpower in getting others to do what they want. Sorry, I lost your uh, audio there, Randy. Sorry about that. Heard some uh, outside noise. I was trying to mute in between. Sorry. So the uh, speaking of um, kind of the stories and thirty second snippets, you know, advertising is probably not as prevalent as, as what it used to be. But I saw there's a cool uh, thirty second spot on Knox Financial um, that you, that you had posted, and I thought it really tells it. You know, the obviously the picture tells a thousand thousand words and stories but yeah you know, yeah I, lo I love those guys so those guys are um enabling people to um you know anybody who who has like had multiple homes has a home they regret selling right um uh some house that like the day they sold it like in the next four years it was worth twice what they sold it for right and what knox does is they help people avoid that selling regret they enable you to buy a new home while hanging on to the house you have as an investment property. And there's a whole bunch involved in that to, to make that happen. There are, you know, there's a financial product, there's supporting some of the property management issues because unlike a mutual fund, you know, keeping a house comes with a part-time job of making sure the whatever, dealing with tenants, so they make all that shit go away. And they help you with this whole suite of capabilities to make that a practical reality for, you know, 
homeowners. And, and, you know, for a while they were talking about that in a kind of very intellectual way, because there's a lot of nuance to that, right? Think about all the aspects of that offering that are required to make it a viable alternative for the vast majority of people. Well, they eventually got to a place when they were like, you know, at the first contact point with the outside world, all we need to do is convince people not to sell the house they have. Uh, and, and our offering really flows from that is to help them understand the potential for the, for the home they have to be a house that they want to hang on to. And that can be a really smart financial investment. And they, they got laser focused on just that, that initial entry point into the idea of Knox. And they built a spot that is all about that. That is, you know, someone about to sell their house and being tackled on their lawn to not do it. And it has this visual impact and you kind of wonder what's happening. Like, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That is taking a, you know, this is a very rational product, right? There's like a mortgage aspect to it and all this operational shit to like change the light bulbs or fix the toilet or like all that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's making sure you're on the right insurance program. There, there's like a whole bunch of stuff. These guys are like investment bankers when it comes to dealing with all the financial shit necessary to make that viable. Um, but it starts with this decision not to sell your house and the recognition that there's a lot of latent value in that property. And so the, the spot really hits that on the head. And I, and I think it's brilliant for that reason. Yeah, re really cool. I wonder, do you think within tech that you're going to see more what I'll call those, you know, if you want to call those ads, you know, kind of 30 second snippets? Yeah, I, I think that visual communication is really important. And I don't think that 30 second advertising necessarily like paid media uh, is is uh, critically important, but you need to be able to tell stories in all the media that your buyers participate in, right? You know, if you're selling enterprise storage, it's not that important to be on TikTok, right? Um, but it is important to understand the people that make decisions in that sphere of whatever. Let's say you're targeting the big I banks down in New York, like, you know, what is the guy who makes decisions on storage down at Citigroup? What blogs does that person read? Who does he or she follow on Twitter? You know, yeah. what, are the, what, what are they watching on YouTube? And try to find ways to insert yourself into the conversations that they care about, attached to the problems they're trying to solve. And I do think video plays a role there. You know, the Knox example is someone who is talking broadly to consumers, as is HomeTap. And for them, the outreach can be a little broader. And for those audiences, there's no question that video content cuts through the clutter because, again, it impacts not just the rational, but the emotional person. Awesome. So um, going uh, deeper with an organization, so individual contributors, a lot of companies now have SDRs, BDRs, ISRs, um, kind of talk about what you think their importance is and uh, maybe any advice for them watching. Yeah, I think they're critically important. And I would say some of these same principles apply there. Um, you know, nobody wants to feel optimized. You know, I don't want to feel funnel optimized. I don't want to like feel like I'm in your drip campaign. Like that's a shitty feeling. Nobody wants that. And people don't respond to that. Right. So there's all these tools to scale your outreach. Don't lose sight of the value of, of you know, connecting with someone on a personal level and, um, you know, personalizing your appeal and trying to do your homework and making that, you know, making contact in that way. So, you know, as a, you know, the BDR is kind of the front line at the intersection of marketing and sales right at the handoff point. And so they need to have, you know, kind of a foot in both worlds. 
and really understand not only the ability to close, but the ability to open with prospects and make a connection with them on a human level. Great. Uh, so from Ernie, uh, says great conversation, Randy and Mike, Mike, what tools in the tech stack have you found to be the most impactful and generate the greatest ROI for an emerging tech company? Um, it's a fair question. Um, I think Clavio is awesome. Um, you know, a friend of mine was, was an early investor there. And so I, I have followed the tool for a long time, but like, you know, despite my disparagement of uh, email drip campaigns, I think they can be done in a way that maintains some level of human connection. You know, what you're looking for at the contact point is, you know, I, I did a blog back in the day called Scalable Intimacy. You know, that's what we're all striving for, right? We want an intimate connection, but we want to do that in a scalable way. And I think tools like Clavio offer the potential for that. They can be misused as easy, easily as they can be used, uh, to be clear, but I think uh, there's no magic in any of these tools. I think Clavio can be a platform that can be super effective. Um, uh, I like to pull things out of the conversation about tools to talk more about tactics and, and programs. And I think the biggest underdone tactic and program in, in B2B is actually influencer marketing. Uh, it is trying to identify who are the people that already have a following uh, and then reaching out to them. You know, one of my favorite, you know, uh, life hacks was, you know, if my team was working on a white paper, uh, I would reach out to someone uh, who, you know, if I was doing my job, I would already have a relationship with these people who were influential in my space. But I would say, hey, you know, John, my team's working on a white paper about X. You know, can I run this by you just as a draft just to get your take on it? You don't have to do anything. Just let me know what you think. And that person would say one of two things. Uh, they would either say, hey, this is great. In which case I would say, listen, what's coming out next week, would you mind flogging it? And more often than not, they'd say, sure. Or more often they would say, this sucks. This is total bullshit, like whatever. And then I would say, thank you. Um, would you help me create something better? Um, you know, I would love it if you would write this. You know, I got $5,000 to make this. I'm happy to give it to you if you will produce this for me and help me put it in the direction of something that would be useful to your audience. And if they bought on that, which very often they did, like the social media stuff is usually a side hustle for these folks, mm -hmm. um, then I would have their support. I would get not only the value of their content, but their value of their network once that content was available. And so it's a win-win deal. Uh, you know, more people should do that. So one example, Activia, I would imagine would be somebody like a Steve DePlessy, right? So early on, you may not have the money to have hired them, but you'd say, hey, Steve, uh, you know, what, what do you think? And obviously for those who know Steve, he's always opinionated for, for better, for worse. Usually, Steve always usually, says this sucks. Um, usually for better and you got to hire me, but yeah. even for them, it's kind of a Trojan horse too, right? If you're a grow, growing company to, to Ernie's question there, smaller company, you, know, you get some of these other influencers, they help now, then they know, Hey, down the road, there's probably going to be some revenue coming, coming back to them. And uh, Gartner, obviously, long time has been, you know, that's kind of pay, pay, pay to play, right? For lack of better words. Yeah. Well, actually, I think Gartner's secret is that they're not. Like, you can write them a huge check and they will not take your phone call. Um, uh, uh, you know, the thing to understand with Gartner is that they don't lead the market. They follow the market, right? They're a great way to find what customers think, not a great way to shape what customers think, uh, was my experience with them. 
Um, very important, their executive conference was like the one or two must do things. Like I have great respect for what they've done, but they're real franchises. They, they're not pay to play. And so customers still trust what they say. Uh, that said, they don't lead the market. They follow it in my view. Um, analysts, like what Steve does, what Gartner does and the rest, they're a special, you know, sub neighborhood of the influencer market in general. Right. I promise there are wealth followed just technology leaders in your space um, that are not analysts. There are the whatever, they're a storage guy at JP Morgan, but for whatever reason, they write a blog or they have a Twitter account or they do something on YouTube and people are care about what they have to say. Those people are like critical um, because they are objective and they will tell you the truth and they're always looking for new things to share with their audience. So I would actually start with those folks uh, before I would, you know, uh, spend 60% of my budget on, on uh, Gartner shows and analyst calls. Um, you know, Steve is kind of somewhere in between a very influential guy who happens to monetize that through an analyst business model. Um, but that's uh, my view. Gotcha. Great. And uh, of course, can't leave out emissary. Yeah. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, all of this is really about how do I get an advantage, right? You know, if, if you know, Huge Co is looking for whatever, I keep coming back to storage because it's such a universal thing. But if Huge Co is looking for a new cloud partner, uh, I promise you all the cloud partner salespeople are on that. And they're all using the same shit that you're using. They all have access to the same stuff attached to Salesforce and whatever. And uh, what would really be valuable is to know someone who knew what was happening behind the scenes inside that account. And the place to get that is emissary. Um, you know, it's the opportunity to connect with a former sales executive there. So there's no conflict of interest to understand who has juice inside this account. What do they care about? You know, what, what, what do they have PTSD about? You know, when they chose another vendor like you, where are they going from here? What are their priorities? Um, and having that really gives you an edge. Uh, and, uh, you know, what emissary is doing, I think is really powerful and, um, I think over time, they're going to become a must-have for folks that want to lead in the enterprise sales categories that uh, they're a part of. There you go. Perfect. Uh, what about, we're just about getting to the end here. Uh, what about maybe sharing thoughts on how you've seen sales change? Uh, sales has changed because people don't give a shit about technology anymore. And I, I think that, um, uh, or I should say customers don't give a shit about technology. Um, Sales guys seem to care a lot about it. It's all feeds and speeds. It's all whatever. It's all the same shit. Like, and, and like, it's very difficult to maintain a feature-based competitive advantage. In the end, the team that wins the deal is really going to be the team that understands the problem, the business problem most closely. So how do I get insight as to what is the business problem they're looking to solve? And how do I tell the story of how my particular solution is uniquely well suited to solve that problem for that customer. For me, that's what matters today. Um, it's all about business impact. It's all about business results. People got to get away from like the technical whatever, MFP fluoride, all that horse shit. It just doesn't move the needle in terms of getting people to do what you need them to do. What does is attaching to the business problem, really getting underneath what are the technical drivers of that and helping the customer understand how you are uniquely well suited uh, to solving that problem and unlocking that value for the business. That's a change. I don't think it was like that 30 years ago, but it's 100% like that today. Right. T -t totally, for sure. 
Um, all right. Well, t time flies when you're having fun. Um, it's been awesome having you, Mike. Uh, certainly, certainly uh, great job. And I'm sure this will get a lots of uh, additional views and, and posts. So uh, as a reminder, uh, this is always brought to you by Sales Community. If you want to learn more and sell more, go to salescommunity.com. And thanks to uh, Ken and Taos for being the sponsor today. As a reminder, Taos provides DevOps, Dev Security Ops, FinOps, and Data Ops to help you with business outcomes uh, so you thrive in a cloud agnostic world. How's that? There and, you go. Um, next week, totally psyched to have uh, Mike Sullivan. This will be episode 71. He's VP of sales at CrowdStrike, and that's going to be sponsored by Sales Impact Academy. And his topic is going to be building a sales culture that all functions can get behind. So kind of goes hand in hand with what you've been talking about today, Mike. And uh, Tucker, as always, thanks for your help behind the scenes. Uh, everybody have a great week. Happy selling. And uh, thank you, Mike.